Mac Power Users, episode 435, Workflows with Don McAllister. Hello, everyone. It's David Sparks, along with my pal, Katie Floyd. How are you doing, Katie? Hey, David. I'm great. How are you? Excellent. Uh, back from WWDC, uh, recovering from a little cold, so I'm going to try and... Uh, do all my coughing off mic, but I'm going to apologize in advance if I get you sick. That's what happens when you when you hang out with those shady people in San Jose. Yeah, developers, man. It's those guys. You got to watch out for them. And our friend from Liverpool, I'll say our man in Liverpool is here today. Don McAllister, welcome back to the show. Hi there. Yeah, it's good to be back. It seems to be ages since I was on the Mac Power users, but uh, I'm sure it wasn't that long ago, but it seems a long time. Well, in computer terms, it has been ages. So we're so happy to have you back. I saw you up in San Jose, and now we're uh, we got you on mic so we can catch up with Don McAllister and all the stuff he does. Don makes screencasts online and a lot of other amazing stuff for everybody out there, and we're going to talk about that during the show. But before we do so, just a couple uh, bits of news. Uh, after saying I wouldn't be at MacStock for about a year, now I will be at MacStock. So if you are attending MacStock, I expect you to come up and introduce yourself to me because uh, that's one of the reasons you go to these things. Uh, that's going to be uh, second weekend of July in Illinois. Don, you're going to be there as well, right? Yes, I'll be there. I, unfortunately, I couldn't make it last year because of family commitments, but uh, this year uh, it was touch and go, but I'm glad to say that I'll be there as well. So, uh, yes, looking forward to that immensely. I really miss the Macworld experience. You know, WWDC is fun, but it's the users that I really enjoy speaking with. And uh, everybody's told me for years I need to get out there. I'm not speaking or anything. I'm just going to show up, and I'm I'm looking forward to a nice, relaxing weekend. So if you guys are going, please look me up. Maybe we'll even do an MPU meetup or something while we're there. And um, the so that's uh, going to be uh, July 21st and 22nd. Looks like right. Yes, and then on the July 9th, I'm going to be in London. We're doing a Mac Power Users meetup in Weatherspoons near the Wicked Theater in downtown London. I'll get the address in a blog post at Max Barkey, and uh, probably next week I'll put the address on the show. I just need to look it up. But uh, we haven't set the exact time, but it's going to be in the evening. Uh, last time we did it at lunchtime, and it was great, but it was really hard for a lot of people to get away. So if you're in London, come see us. I don't know, Don, if you're going to be able to make it down from Liverpool or not, but we'd love to have you if you can. Yeah, um, July the 9th sort of rings a bell, actually, so I'm not sure if I'll be able to make it, but uh, so so near yet so far. That's uh, it's, only, it's only about, what, two and a half hours on the train to London from where I am, so uh, it's doable. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll check my calendar later on, see if, uh, see if I could actually get down there. And the last bit of news before we move on is, um, uh, yes, I did install the beta after I said at the end of the WWDC show I wouldn't for a while. I installed it early. That was predictable. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's funny how these things cascade. You put it on one device, and within like three or four days, it's on all your devices, except in my case, my uh, podcasting rig, which is still the older operating system. But it's uh, So I'm doing tons of research and playing with it. I just did a big post at Max Barkey. I don't usually reference those in the show, but I did one on Siri shortcuts that I think is really good. And I went and pulled all the screenshots from the keynote because there was a ton of information on those screenshots that Apple never talked about. And I'd recommend going and checking that out. I'll put the link in the show notes. Just look at those screenshots and you can see that MPU is going to have a lot to talk about uh, next year or later this year when this stuff goes public. At least another 10 episodes, right, David? <laughs> Who knows? Because, you know, we never we never will get past 10 episodes. 
Oh yeah, at least so we have at least another ten, Katie. I think we're good for that. Okay. Uh, oh, and I guess while we're talking about news, this has been kind of bubbling around. The uh, episode five hundred is not for a year, uh, but we're starting to get serious about doing something. And uh, let us know your thoughts. I'm probably going to put a poll online or something. I think, uh, Katie, it looks like you know we're looking at maybe like a weekend event somewhere. Uh, maybe we take over a hotel somewhere and we have some fun. But um, we're really curious to see how many people would be interested in that because it's going to be a lot of work putting it together. So just tweet it. Tweet at me. Don't tweet at Katie. She doesn't want to hear it. But the um, uh, tweet at Max Sparky, and we're we're working on something. So stay tuned for that. I put my vote in for a cruise, but he keeps he keeps uh, poo pooing that. Cruise is a great idea. Uh, Don would come if we had a cruise. I mean, you're all about the cruises. We'll talk about that of later. Of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, let us know if, that's a, if you're interested in a cruise. But my concern with the cruise is it's cost prohibitive. There's a lot of people that would want to go. You know, we're, we're going to end up at Disneyland. You know this is how this is going to end up, right? <laughs> we're going to end up at Disneyland. So since we went there, just let me say, I was thinking possibly one possible option is like there's some really nice areas in Southern California, like Laguna beach or somewhere where we could get a nice um, hotel where we could have like a live show. We could have like a user show and tell something like that. And then maybe a day at Disneyland that might, that's one option, but let us know. Like I said, I, I think we need to start planning soon if we're going to make it happen. And 500 episodes is a pretty big deal. So I, I'd like to celebrate it if we can. All right. Are we ready to move on with the show? Yes, let's talk to Don McAllister, who's staying up till the middle of the night so he can podcast with us. <laughs> yeah, well, at least you have to make these sacrifices, you know, but uh, it's been a long day, so but I'll try and keep the energy level up, so don't worry about me. So so everybody knows my wife is not that interested in me teaching or anything about technology, but if I get put her in front of Screencast Online, she's, she's perfectly happy to listen to Don's, you know, uh, Liverpool accent and, and learn about using her Mac. Excellent, yeah. But of course, it's not just me these days. We've got a, a whole host of, uh, of presenters now. So uh, the empire has expanded a little bit. And we're going to talk a lot about that later in the show, because, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot is how we aspire to delegate our work, but maybe not necessarily have gotten so good at it. So we, we want to hear a little bit about how you've done it. Sure, sure. But let's let's go back to basics and, and talk a little bit. Don, how long have you been doing screencasts online? It's it's been it's been longer than Mac Power users I know. So did you start you start in the early two thousands? Is that when this started? What's what's your origin story? Yeah, origin story is um, I was working in corporate IT um, as um, not connected with training or anything. It was I was I was a systems architect in a, a big outsourcing firm, and um, I just really started. Uh, I wanted to start a. It was when podcasting was just starting off. So this would have been middle of two thousand and five. And I, you know, I was, I was encouraged by the technology. I really got into the technology side of it. And uh, I'd, I'd only recently become a Mac user, surprisingly enough. Uh, and I had this brainwave of doing, um, you know, a Mac podcast for newbie Macs to, you know, to get familiar with, with, with Macs, etc. Uh, of course, no iOS, no iPhones in those days. It was all, it was all Mac related. <clears throat> but when I actually, I got everything together, I think I even got a domain name together as well and everything. But um when it came to record, I, I just really didn't know what to talk about. It was it was weird. I got as far as having it all set up, and then I sort of bailed at the last minute. Um, but I actually started to make screencasts to help uh, a relative of mine get familiar with her Mac, and it sort of dawned on me that I could, you know, take this piece of digital content, which was a video, and instead of just delivering audio as a podcast, deliver video as a podcast. So I 
kicked off Screencast Online as a, a purely as a hobby podcast. And that would have been that would have been later in 2005. And it sort of took off. We got lots of feedback from people. People really enjoyed the content. But it was it was a huge amount of work to create, you know, a video each week. It was it was taking most of my weekends to do that. So round about the beginning of 2006, I sort of had a brainwave that perhaps I could monetize it and, you know, start up a membership system. And that was the genesis of it, really. I, I still had free content, but I opened it up to people and said, look, if you want to become a member, um, I'll produce some content just for members only. At the time, I think it was just like one week out of four was member content. And it really just sort of snowballed from there. Of course, it took a while to grow the membership. But at the same time, I, I started to do um, uh, sponsored screencasts. Um, so, or, or I get commissioned. I go out and seek commissions from people to do screencasts on their products and, uh, you know, charge them. Um, and, and so I sort of had two or three different sort of revenue streams coming in up until the point a couple of years later when the membership grew to the, the point where I could, you know, not rely on that side of it and just rely on the membership subscriptions to, to keep me going. So it's actually been going now. So what's that? That's 12 years, which is uh, an awful, a lot longer than I expected, put it like that. And you decided you weren't just going to create a, a podcast. I mean, let, let's be clear, you were creating this back in, you know, really before, I mean, the the big start of, po- you were an early into podcast if you were doing podcasts in the late 2000s. You were doing this in the mid 2000s. And not only did you decide to do a podcast, you decided to do a video podcast, which which was a big thing. I mean, audio is is hard. Don't get me wrong. It was really hard back then. But doing video added a whole nother dimension to it because you had the audio and you had the video. We're talking massive file sizes. We're talking a lot of people did not even have broadband back then. I, I know it sounds like not that long ago, but I mean, file sizes was it was a huge limitation. Yeah, well, I was fortunate. I mean, I was I was checking back actually. At when did YouTube start? And that YouTube started around about the same time, so people weren't familiar with sort of downloading video files, etc. So it was very, you know, it was quite early on. And also, when I went with the uh, the membership side of things, I decided to go with HD video, which again is a whole new ball game. Although it was only twelve eighty by seven twenty, you know, those sort of file sizes, that resolution um, was quite unusual for people um, to uh, to produce in that resolution and, and to download. But um, t- two factors really that, that helped me through. One was that because there were screencasts and I didn't have live video on screen, so I didn't sort of have a headshot of myself. It was purely just the desktop capture. And the nice thing with screencasts is you can record a, a, you know, a very low refresh rate and still have good quality. So um, I could you know create a 30-minute high definition screencast and compress the file down to like 100 megabytes in size which was fantastic for you know for people downloading they didn't have to download you know um 500 gigabytes or or whatever it was it was a very very small file so that was good and also um libsyn you know i've got a hold out for libsyn libsyn libsyn.com who were going back in those days that they they are a, a hosting service for podcasters and they had a fantastic um, and they still do have this fantastic arrangement whereby you only pay for the amount of storage you have on their servers. So in effect, the bandwidth becomes free. So my upload bandwidth and the bandwidth to all the people that downloaded the screencasts was in effect uh, completely free. I just had to pay um, a rolling amount to keep storage on the servers. And that was so cost effective. You know, it, it, it made me be able to turn it into a business, really. Yeah, it, it really is impressive, though, what you've done and how long you've been doing it, Don. Uh, maybe we should just take a minute right now just to talk a little bit about screencasting, because like you were saying, back when we started, 
I mean, I remember trading notes with you at the time, and we had these crazy workflows where we had a separate app to capture the video, a separate app to process and do the edits in, usually a separate app to do the effects in. I mean, every piece of it was like another round trip somewhere. And, um, and all, most of those apps are gone now. I mean, I can't, I can't even remember the name of the one. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just racking my brain to think of some of them. But there, there were two or three apps that we used to use. And I, I think they have uh, pretty much gone now. The, the biggest problem I remember was, you know, you, you'd record a, a three-minute segment and then it'd take 10 minutes to render or save. So, you know, you, you know that, that was horrendous. You'd be, you'd be recording and then you'd have to stop for 10 minutes while the, the machine caught up with, with what you'd done and then carry on again, you know. So uh, whereas now, um, I think pretty much everybody uh, uses ScreenFlow now, which yeah, as you... I'm sure the listeners are aware is, a, is an integrated um, screencasting application that includes both the capture elements, um, the editing elements, and also the the compression, the output elements as well, all in a single package. So many times I've sort of thought, well, shall I go over to Final Cut Pro, you know, and will that give me any advantages? And, and really it doesn't. Everything is contained within ScreenFlow. And, um, you know, that, that's that been a, a tremendous boon since they brought that onto the market. Yeah, it's just, it's just like it, it cut, like easily you know cut the workflow down to like 20 percent of what it used to be and um and and it makes a really good product we had jf Brissett on the show i don't know about six months ago who i know does some editing for you and everybody that spends any time in in ScreenFlow just loves it i get asked tweeted emailed almost weekly you know what did you use to make that screencast and it's always simple just spend a hundred bucks get ScreenFlow, and then spend a little time learning how to use the app like the ripple deletes and some of the the, the effects they have but it's um it, anybody can make a good screencast or at least you have the tools to make a good screencast uh, these days where you, you just didn't before and that really is great for all of us oh yeah yeah i mean you've got things like quicktime now that does enable you to to capture screen and to trim but um, if you're going to do it seriously, you really do need something like uh, ScreenFlow. I use it for everything now. So if I'm, you know, re- editing some audio, um, it's it's just too easy just for me to drop it into ScreenFlow because I've got, you know, all the muscle memory, all the keyboard maestro sh- shortcuts that I have built up over the years. Um, I can just fly through an editing session, whether it be uh, audio, whether it be live video as well. <clears throat> you know, I have done some some. Visit, uh, editing of live video it handles you know up to 4k quite easily and you can compress it down it's uh, it's just a great great package yeah like and like another thing i get asked frequently is they say well what about now that ios 11 has a screen capture basically a screen um, capture button that you can add to the control center um and i i'll use that on occasion when i made the iphone feel good i used it for the navigation apps because i was driving around but uh, when I'm at home or in my office, I use the Direct Connect to ScreenFlow and record it because it's actually a higher resolution uh, than it is with the capture. But even then, when I was using the capture, the video capture built into iOS 11, I would just import those videos into ScreenFlow, and then I could you can put a frame around it or you could record the audio on top of it. But but I think really, if you want to get good at screencasting right now, ScreenFlow is the answer. I think so, yeah. And I, I, I flick between either the internal screen flow capture or sometimes um, I'll capture the iOS um, screen in uh, QuickTime and then I'll just bring that straight into ScreenFlow. The quality is fantastic. And uh, as you say, put the frame around it, um, you know, do transitions and stuff within within ScreenFlow itself. 
Yeah, that's a good idea because if I have one complaint about ScreenFlow is sometimes it's not consistent with iOS capture. Sometimes uh, the the red light will go on and you're recording and you get it at the end and you've got a really nice audio file and no video file. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And um, yeah, if there's anything I hate doing, it's recording the same you know, segment two times because it's uh, the first time didn't capture. But that's the only, I must admit, with, with ScreenFlow, that's the only um, problem that I've had with it, sometimes not capturing the iOS screen. Um, but the, my my way around is, the problem is that you can't actually, although you see the red recording light, you don't see the screen being captured uh, if you use the internal mechanism, whereas with QuickTime, you actually see it on screen and you know that it's actually being recorded. So, yeah, that's just my my little uh, safety net, really, to make sure I don't lose anything. Now, Camtasia is another competitor. I haven't looked at them in several years. I tried them out when they first came to the Mac, but it wasn't ScreenFlow for me at the time. And and part of it was, frankly, the muscle memory of having worked with ScreenFlow. But uh, I, I, have you have you tried that one lately? Not really. I mean, I'm familiar with it, although I have to say that it seems to have gone quiet over the past uh, 12, 18 months. They used to be a lot more visible than, than they seem to be now, but exactly the same. You know, I'd sort of built up so much muscle memory using ScreenFlow. What I would say is a- another thing is upcoming with uh, Mac OS 14. <laughs> I'm confused now. Is it 13? I'm confused. Which one? 10.14. It's 1.4, right? The new one? Mojave. How about we just call it Mojave? Yeah, Apple has built in a bit of a screencasting tool to quickly capture a video from the screen. But that is really just intended to be like a short capture, like if you're going to drop a video into a keynote or or to report a bug, I think it'll be really good for that. But but honestly, if you want to get into the screencasting racket, you need to get yourself a copy of ScreenFlow and a decent mic, and then you're good. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. So, Don, fast forward. It's it's been a long time since we talked about the origin stories of screencasts online. Here we are now in 2018. How has some of this changed in terms of uh, hardware perspective? The things that you're doing. I, I know you seem to. It seems like every couple of I, I say months. That's probably not true. Years. Uh, we we get a, a new behind the scenes of screencasts online episode. This is how Don's <laughs> uh, setup has changed. Um, what are, what are you doing now? I know as we a little behind the scenes of the the podcast, we were we were talking about you were you were moving over to your your Mac Pro to record this off of your off of your laptop. What are what are you running these days? Um, right. Well, I um, I, I, I bought I treated myself to an iMac Pro. Um, I, I did have the Mac Pro, which has stood me in good stead, actually. And we still have the uh, the Mac Pro. Uh, my daughter's involved with Screencast Online now, and that she does some of the uh, some of the editing of the uh, the content that's produced. So she's inherited my Mac Pro. I have the uh, the iMac Pro uh, with an external monitor, and um, yeah, it's great. You know, although I have to say. I don't do really big encoding sessions anymore because that's sort of distributed between different people and different machines. So I really got it for the for the screen because I, I I love the screen on the iMac Pro. So that's the uh, that was the main driver to get it. The performance is nice, of course, as, as well. But um, yeah, I'm really happy with the machine. Um, I mean, as far as other gear, we we, we I sort of have a, s- a separate um, for when I do the screencast recording. I have a separate rig now, which is um, a Thunderbolt monitor with a MacBook Pro with touch. Uh, touch bar so i have that set up permanently with a separate audio system so that i can just switch across to there and and do any recordings um bring it back across to the imac pro to do any editing that i do and then uh, pass it off to jf who you mentioned before or to nicola to uh, to carry on the editing side of things and the, and the post-production workflow from that point on 
Don, you know, I go through this thing about every six months where I say, oh, I'm going to add a second monitor to my iMac. And I do the research. I look for the best one. I look for monitor arms. And ultimately, after burning like an hour going down that rabbit hole, I realize, what on earth do I need a second monitor for? I have 27 inches here. <laughs> this is just something that's going to get in my way. And I, and, I, and I delete the cart and I go back to my life. But every six months, this happens to me. So... So what are you doing with your second monitor on your iMac? Well, it's just a, it's just another place. To, I, I tend to use it as um, a, 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 like a dock for Windows. So if, if I'm working on something and then I just want to, want to put it to one side, I still like to have it visible. So I'll just drag it across to the second monitor and it can stay there on the second monitor and I get on with the primary monitor as my sort of primary task in hand. But it's, it's good just to have that extra screen real estate to, to drag things across, um, you know, just to have multiple windows open so that I can refer to them at a glance rather than having to tab back to them or to, or to rearrange my main windows on, on the main monitor. So it's, it's something I've always had, actually. I've always had two monitors and it's a bit of a luxury, but I've got quite used now to, you know, having a second monitor to just to, to store open windows on so I don't have to close them or, or hide them and then switch back to them. I think ultimately for me, it's the, because I have an R2-D2 on my desk too, and I think I'd have to remove him if I put a second monitor, and that's what always ends up pushing me away. I can't get rid of R2. Well, there you go. It's, it's, um, <laughs> it, it takes a bit of getting used to as well, because I've got the, the, the 5K Mac Pro, and the other monitor is, um, is a 30-inch LG 4K monitor. So there's, it's, it's, it's quite a widespread, but uh, you get used to it after a while. I, I tend to not sit in the middle. I sort of tend to uh, face the iMac Pro and then, as I say, use the other one as a secondary monitor. So I'll just turn to look at that as and when I need to. We had a guest on our show a few years ago who was a composer who mounted a television on the wall behind his his Mac. Like, you know, if you've got a Mac on your desk, you have a television above it and on the wall. And he would use it because he's uh, watching the programs he's composing music for. But I always like the idea of a second monitor as like a status board. Remember that Panic App status board a few years ago? Yes, the, the Panic App. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I think it'd be cool to do something off the Mac, but I, I don't know. I'd have to write something or figure out a way to actually make that work. I mean, I, I actually have a TV on the wall <laughs> behind my second monitor, but it's been there for years. And I got it primarily to use with the Apple TV, but do, I have to you connect it to your Mac. Uh, no, it's connected to an Apple TV, but it hardly ever gets switched on. Very, very rarely. So it's uh, it's a bit of a waste there, to be honest. Yeah. All right. Well, you're not helping. You're just another <laughs> big enabler. No, well, the nice thing with the second monitor as well, uh, talking about the Apple TV, is I do connect the second monitor to my Apple TV. Uh, so sometimes if I'm uh, researching something or testing something on the Apple TV, I can I can see that on the second monitor and have my iMac, you know, as, as the as the main monitor. So that that is what, another use that I use all the time for uh, for my secondary monitor. Okay, we better stop there. This is going to get expensive. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Smile Software, makers of PDF Pen and Text Expander, and the original sponsor of the Mac Power Users. This week, we just wanted to take a moment to congratulate Smile Software on celebrating their 15th year. There are many software companies that survived the last 15 years with the switch to mobile and all the changes in software pricing and modeling, but Smile did it, and they continue to make outstanding software as a result. I personally use Text Expander and PDF Pen in my business every day, and I don't know how I'd get by without them. 
Moreover, Smile is just a great company. It's full of people that really care about their products and their customers. And as I've got to know them over the years, I know exactly why they've survived so long, just because they care so much. Every day, I review and analyze legal contracts for my lawyer business using PDF Pen Pro. And also, I'm a Text Expander subscriber. I have a team account that I buy one for myself and for my assistant so I can update my Text Expander snippets for her to use without her even knowing. If you're looking for quality productivity software, look no further than smilesoftware.com. And once again, Katie and I just want to extend our congratulations to Smile for 15 years in the Mac and iOS community and helping make all of our lives better. To learn more, head over to textexpander.com slash podcasts or smilesoftware.com slash podcasts and let them know you heard about it here on the Mac Power Users. So, Don, we talked a little bit about the uh, the Mac gear you're running, but you, you do a lot of screencasts now for iOS and we have watchOS and, and tvOS. How, do, how are you pulling all of that off and how are you implementing all of this into your gear? Right. Well, I, I tend to buy um, separate. It, it gets very difficult if you use your own personal equipment to do demos. Um, it gets very messy, you know, because you've got your, especially with everything tied through an iCloud account. So I tend not to use my personal equipment to do the the screencast. So, like, I have a MacBook Pro that I mentioned before that um, uh, has two partitions on. One is a, a partition that's set up just for screencasts online, so that has a separate account set up on there, and that's tied into my SEO demo iCloud account and then I have an iPad Air 2 which is purely used for screencasting I have um, well I have a couple of iPhones as well which I use primarily for screencasting and also for for beta testing as well Um, I do have a second watch or I think I've got a Series 2 watch um, that again it was my personal watch but when other Series 3 has come out that's been demoted now to a a, um, a, a demo watch that I can use when I'm recording uh, Apple uh, Apple Watch screencasts, and then a separate Apple TV. So basically, if I'm going to demo anything on a, an Apple device, I tend to have a separate device that's there specifically for screencasting, just so I can keep it clean. I can just install the applications I want on it. Um, they're all configured with the the SEO demo um, Apple ID, so they all talk to each other. And I just find that to be, you know, the 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 best way really to control the environment when I'm actually doing the screencasting. And so you have all of these these test devices kind of set up just the way that you want. You know you know the apps that are on them. You've got the the environment controlled. But then in terms of actually recording the screen with these, I, I know years ago you were actually doing some of these with Steadicam. Are there better ways now to to get in to record them? Not really. I mean, I have. Um, I, st- I still much prefer. I mean, obviously the Mac is no problem because we can use uh, ScreenFlow to capture the Mac screen. And again, as we mentioned before, for the iOS devices i much prefer to capture the screen digitally rather than with um, um, a video camera Uh, one because the quality is so much better Um, it does have the downside though of one of the big issues with ios which i i wish they would address at some point is that you can't capture the taps on screen so one of our big bugbears is that whenever we record an ios segment and you see the taps appear on the screen well that's that's all manual that's all put in in post-production you know they they are actually animated graphics that uh, we painstakingly go through and position and and animate so that's that's a major pain um with the apple pencil uh, i found and with the 
and with the Apple Watch as well, I found that, you know, we, we couldn't do that all the time. We would have to record um, the, the screen itself. I, I still don't enjoy doing that, to be honest, and I, I still don't think the quality is quite there. But I have a um, a separate camera, which is in sort of a, a, a rig looking down on an iPad or an iPhone that I can use to capture live video. But it's... it's um, I'm still not happy with the results that that gives, but it, it works. It's fine. But, you know, I'd much prefer to capture it digitally, even though it does mean we have to put these taps in um, in as a manual process in post-production. Yeah, and it is a very time-intensive process, no matter how you go about doing that. Yeah, yeah. We, we try and sort of make a balance. We, we don't put every single tap and swipe in, just those that are significant to the viewer, because, you know, there are no real visual clues when you're looking at an iOS uh, device. Uh, we, can, we can talk about buttons in the top corner or the bottom corner or left or right, but it's not like your, your eye follows a cursor on a, a Mac so that you know, you know, whether spatially where you are on the desktop and when a click happens, you've, you've normally followed the cursor so that you know where the, the cursor is and you can see it click. But uh, it can be on an iOS device, top corner one second, bottom corner the next second, and you've got no way of tracking that visually. So we do need, we do need to put some taps in. Yeah. How do you go about doing that? Like if someone's making one of these for their company or something, they want to add taps. Um, well, the way we do it is basically we just have a series of um, uh, the basically uh, small .mov files, which are a single tap, a long press, um, two taps. Uh, to be honest, I think someone created them and put them out for public consumption. I can't remember where we got them from now, but I just use those. Now, we have a um, we have a separate ScreenFlow template file that contains things like captions and the um, the inserts that we use. And embedded within that are, you know, all these different types of taps. And we just drag them out onto the project file as and when we need them. Uh, saying that, the ScreenFlow does have its own built-in touch taps now. So you can use them. But again, it's just getting over the learning curve of using the, the ScreenFlow, ScreenFlow ones. We've never really sort of took the time to, to use the ScreenFlow mechanism. We still use these external files. It's, uh, it seems to be much easier. Yeah, I did for a long time. I did it with the the ScreenFlow built-in stuff, but using your own animations is so much easier. It, the ScreenFlow stuff takes a lot of taps to get that thing rolling on the screen. Sure, sure, sure. You can set up templates and things, but again, we've we've just never really spent the time to go through and see whether or not it would be quicker for us. But um, it's just that initial learning curve we've we've not looked at. But you know, it is remarkable going back to the start of this conversation. Just that's our big complaint now, you know, compared to how hard it was in years past. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm just waiting for just just one iOS release when Apple will bring out, you know, could be under accessibility, but just system wide taps. Because I'm sure, yeah, you know, not just screencasters, but people who want to demo um, their own applications and they're creating their own screencasts, you know, just to switch that on and have system wide taps reflected. Uh, would, would be so good. Uh, and some applications have actually done that. Um, not so much now, but in the early days, one or two iOS developers realized the benefit of doing this and built um, an option within the preferences of the app to switch on tap so they could be reflected back, which was fantastic. I think PDF Pen had that for a while. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I don't, I'm not sure if they still have it, but they definitely had it at one point. You know what needs to happen is game developers that want to make their sample videos need to complain because Apple's making a lot of money off those guys. <laughs> so, uh, so, so you got the uh, iMac Pro, you got the the production machines. How are you using iOS in your life these days, Don? I mean, are you a, an iPad guy or? Yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoy using the iPad. I mean, I use. I've had the iPhone. 
uh, 10, which I use you know constantly. I have um, well, I have two iPads that I sort of flick between. Um, the iPad, I, I'm really starting to enjoy the iPad Pro. You know, the 12 inch, 12.7 inch iPad Pro. Um, I tend to use that most of the time now, even though it's quite a large size. I, I just enjoy the the larger screen size. But I still struggle. I mean, for, for consumption, I know it's a cliche, but, you know, for consumption, for, for email triaging, for uh, reading stuff, for Twitter, for, you know, basically anything that I want to read, I'll, I'll always pick up the iPad um, before the Mac. But as soon as I want to do something just that little bit more complicated, I, I find myself getting frustrated with the uh, with the iPad. And invariably, I'll end up going back to the Mac to, you know, do some some of the more complex pieces that I need to do. Um, I think that will change over time, but there's, there's still that barrier for me of that last ten percent of stuff that I can't quite achieve, sort of seamlessly or or frictionlessly, if that's such a word, on the iPad. Um, I still have to go to the Mac to do that, and I enjoy using the Mac as well. So uh, it's not really a, a pain, but it would be nice to do everything on the iPad. But we're not quite there yet. Yeah, we got so far with iOS eleven. I um, when I went up to San Francisco, I'm sorry, when I went to San Jose for. WWDC. I I took my my MacBook, but only for the purpose of recording the show. And largely, I got by on my iPad all week. But you know, every time you try and go three or four days just using an iPad, you find little friction points. the The one I discovered on that trip was if someone emails me a document and I just want to save it to iCloud Drive, um, I can do that. But there's no way to create a new folder. You know, like if if you have a client document, you want to create a folder for it. That there's just no method for that. And that's such an obvious thing. There's a button for it on the Mac. Every time you go to save a file, you have the option to create a new folder. And it's just like, you know, and once again, we're getting pretty far down the onion, but those are the kinds of things that will just make you nuts if if you try and really make this thing work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I... I past few trips i've actually taken both the ipad and the macbook with me and uh, invariably i there's always one task at least that i need to do on the macbook having said that though i, I have in the, in recent times started to use remote access more so you know my imac pro is, is on here all the time um rather than spend time trying to get my macbook and and this is you know a lot of the the applications and the scripts that we use it's a bit of a palaver to try and synchronize my macbook to do exactly what my imac pro will do so what i've started to do more and more providing i have a decent uh, network connection is to remote control into my imac pro and just just run things from here uh, you know remotely and that seems to have worked really well so you know running scripts or, or um, uploading and downloading files to the production machines i can either use um well i tend not to use the mac to do that i'll use the the, the big screen of the iPad Pro, uh, run Parallels um, Connect, I think it's called, um, or the Parallels Remote application that connects straight through and it, it works a treat. And, you know, I don't have to worry about configuring my remote machine to match my iMac Pro. I just use the iMac Pro from a remote location. I want to shift gears a little bit. And um, we've talked about the Mac. We've talked about iOS. I'm a little curious. We haven't talked so much about the Apple Watch yet, and we've got some improvements coming out to Apple Watch. I know you were a big Apple Watch user. I know you've screencast quite a bit about it. Are you using your Apple Watch still regularly? And we've just had WWDC. Are you? What are you looking forward to coming out? Um, yeah, I'm. I'm still a big fan of the Apple Watch. It's the uh, you know the first thing I put on in the morning, and the last thing I take off at night. So it's it's with me constantly. Um, I tend to use well various applications on it now i don't use a lot but you know i'm still a, a big fan of the the workouts application and the activity application um i tend to use um 
it's for travel as well. But it, it's it's I just I just, it's just a part of my sort of daily routine now. Um, we don't do that many screencasts about it now, if I'm honest. Um, we'll we'll probably we t- we tend to do more when the new releases come out and then follow through. I think part of that is is the friction of actually trying to record. It's quite a pain to to record that small screen um, for a screencast. But you know we will be doing some more screencasts about the Apple Watch when the next release comes out. I was um, yeah. Uh, pleasantly surprised with what was coming out although there was no sort of major uh, changes to the apple watch uh, other than the i think the the background audio thing is great and be able being able to have podcasts on the apple watch is is fantastic so that's something i'm looking forward to um i i tend to go out for my daily walk but i still take my iphone with me and you know listen to music and stuff off the iphone rather than the apple watch i did get the series three with the uh, cellular connection but unfortunately here in the uk there's only one carrier that supports the apple watch um uh, cellular connection and that's not my carrier and i i, I just just didn't think it was worth switching carriers for that expecting my my carrier to come out with support hopefully quickly but they they haven't as of yet so um uh, i've got my cellular watch but no cellular connection unfortunately well that's better than me i i bought the cellular watch having no intention of activating the cellular connection i mean i thought about it for a little while but um just because i wanted the stainless steel not you know and they don't offer that in the so i i ended up paying a pretty penny more for my watch to have both cellular and stainless steel with no, really, no intention of ever using it, but <laughs> well, I, 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 um, I went. I mean, this this series three watch is the first watch that I didn't get stainless steel, and I, I regret that decision. I regretted it after, about two weeks after buying this one. This is just the aluminium version, and I'd forgotten that the the glass is not the uh, the sapphire glass on this version. So within two weeks, I had some horrible scratches on my watch face. And uh, I never had a single scratch on my previous watches because they were all the stainless steel with the with the sapphire glass. So I won't make that mistake again. So it's, it's funny you mention that because I actually have a scratch, one single scratch on my Apple Watch on the stainless steel, where I think I... Um I think I knocked, I just caught my, my hand, I think, on like a door jam. So I think that's where that, that came from. And I handed down my previous Series Zero, I guess is what we're colloquially calling it, the original Apple Watch, to my mom. Uh, and I guess it's just as well that this happened, because now we know that the um, iOS 5 or Watch OS 5 won't support the original Apple Watch. And um, didn't think anything out of it. You know, Apple Care had long since expired of it, but she was using it very basically and, you know, loved it. And she dropped it one day and it just, you know, it just happened to fall, you know, of course, smack on the on the tile floor. And the man, I mean, it probably took about, um, gosh, I, I know I'm, we've probably about a dime size and something the size of a dime. And, and you're probably familiar because you've you know been to the U.S. enough um, chunk out of the, the front face of the watch. And I was like, wow, OK, well, sa- sapphire face, sure. But boy, it, it, it still can it. And it, it was just just gone. So she ended up she ended up picking up a, a, a series one watch in, in aluminum. And it, I, I guess that's ultimately a good thing now. So. And I, I think the other thing, I know you haven't done as many screencasts on the Apple Watches. I think the other reason possibly for that is, you know, the developer story on the Apple Watch has still been, you know, somewhat in question. I don't know that we really got an answer to that at, at WWDC this year. I think the Apple Watch for what it does with its built-in applications and functionality is is great. And for me, that's really all I want it to do. But it, there's still kind of this question of what is the developer story, if there is one really, for the Apple Watch. 
Yeah, I think the last version um, did improve things considerably with the you know the change in the UI and having the uh, uh, the limited dock and also you know having the applications in the list rather than that um, scrolling you know weird format that they had. So the yeah, honeycomb, right. whatever it was. Yeah, I don't know what you actually call that. Yeah, the honeycomb thing, but. Um, Again, I tend not to use third-party apps. Uh, I, I'm using pretty much um, all the built-in apps and not the third-party apps. Uh, ag- again, I think they're a little bit, you know, they, they should have left it really with the developer apps. They should have just launched the watch with the built-in apps and then, as they did with the iPhone, bring the developer community in later uh, once things had sort of settled down and people understood what people were going to use the uh, the Apple Watch for. So I think they probably missed a trick really and uh, and probably brought apps onto the watch too soon. Um, but, you know, um, we'll see what happens when the, with the next iteration of the hardware and the next version of the OS and see what happens with uh, third-party apps. There are some third-party apps that are worth it, though. I mean, like Drafts is a good example where you press one button, you record, it saves text to your phone for you. But there's just so few that really fit the paradigm of that tiny, tiny screen. Um, I, I agree. I, mean, I think it's a, I think it's a tough nut to crack. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you in part by Squarespace. You can learn more and save 10% off your first purchase by heading over to squarespace.com slash MPU and using coupon code MPU. Make your next move with Squarespace. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea. With a unique domain name and award-winning templates, Squarespace has got you covered. Whether you want to create an online store, a portfolio, a blog, whatever you have in mind, Squarespace can handle it. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that lets you do just about anything you want with your website. There is nothing to install. There are no patches to worry about. No upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about spending your time being a web admin because Squarespace has you covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you ever fall into trouble or need any help. They will let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, and they have these award-winning templates that are beautifully designed to help you show off your ideas. But don't worry, your Squarespace site is not going to look like anybody else's because these templates are infinitely customizable. I've been using Squarespace myself, and I've probably got about a half dozen different organizations that I've created Squarespace sites for. I love Squarespace because it's easy for me to quickly create a website, a blog, a portfolio, set it up for someone, and then best of all, hand it over to them. Because with Squarespace, it is drag and drop simple to set up a website and then teach someone else how to maintain it. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a free trial now with no credit card required by heading over to squarespace.com MPU. And I would bet even during your free trial, you can get a site set up for somebody. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for Mac Power users. Again, that's squarespace.com slash MPU and get 10% off your first purchase. Thanks to Squarespace for their continued support. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. Um, so Don, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk to you about some of the behind-the-scenes stuff on on Screencast Online. We always like to talk about the technical and recording and setups and all of those things, but obviously, being as successful as you've been for as long as you've been, there's a there's a business behind there, and you've grown it to quite an empire and managing a lot of people. So, uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the behind-the-scenes stuff of of how that that turned from a hobby to something that you're actually, you quit your job and are now 
bringing in and employing other people to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's been quite quite a journey, really. Uh, Obviously, when I started, I did everything. So I did the... um, show production the recording then all the, the the back-end stuff of the uploading and then you know creating the website the original website was done in rapid weaver uh, back in the day and uh, i used various bits of software to try and manage the members which is quite a big part of the you know of, of the back-end systems uh, and it's it's grown to the point now whereby um, i sort of realized i mean doing two shows a week um for 12 years is is quite quite grueling you know there's it's 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 quite difficult to keep up that sort of output and maintain the quality and have free time as well to sort of go away and, and, and travel, which I've been doing more of recently. So I sort of realised that I needed to to bring more people on board to help out. And initially that was just bringing people on board to help with the post-production side of things so that I would still record all the content and then hand it over to people to um, to publish using the different systems that we have. And then it sort of grew to the fact, well, I thought, well, perhaps I need to get more people in to help me produce the content as well. So at that point, it started to get quite complex. And I realized that I needed some sort of uh, mechanisms to manage the workflow. I mean, the, the good thing is, I mean, all the people I work with are, are great people. So, you know, um, I, there's no worries about sort of managing the people they sort of manage themselves but i do need to manage the process so the the main tools behind that are um i use an application called podio which is a web-based system um developed by citrix i think or or citrix have bought podio anyway and this is sort of like a web-based workflow management system that allows me to uh, create different um workflows to to guide people through the entire process and it, it's grown quite sophisticated now in that uh, there's another system called, I think it's called Globy Flow, which allows me to automate sending emails out to people and uh, automate if a status changes on a particular section or section or, or workflow that will trigger off another action that sends something to somebody else. And it's it, it's quite, um, I'm, I'm, I quite enjoy putting it together, actually. It's quite fun to, to build this and to manage it and to uh, keep tweaking it to generate these automated um, emails to people and messages to people, etc. So that sort of controls the end-to-end workflow of where a particular job is through the entire process. So whether that be so, so for instance, um, invariably I, I will go through and create a schedule for the next six months and then sort of work out who's um, who's going to do a particular screencast. Uh, we don't normally work out what the subjects are going to be that far in advance, but I, I create the slots and, and sort of work out when they're going to be published and then um, allocate those jobs to people. They agree that they're okay with with doing them and, and meeting the deadlines. I sort of put deadlines on when a job needs to be back with me to put into the production process. And then it all kicks off then. So when the recording job, uh, we create a recording job, which creates a folder structure on Dropbox um, that people can drop things into. They get an email to say that it's ready to go. They start the recording process. There's a, a whole script that they go through to make sure everything is sort of to the known standards. Um, and then when they finish, we have different statuses within the different sort of jobs so they will just change the status to recording completed and that will create another job which is then to do like um, jf does an initial review of the the screencast that they've produced and they upload it to dropbox jf downloads it he reviews it sends it back to them if there's any changes needed then he changes the status of his job and then it goes into what's called an assembly um, job, and then Nicola takes that and starts putting all the um, the transitions and the touches and 
all the various bits and pieces. And then there's five or six different stages each screencast goes through till at the end we have um, a dynamic web page that's created automatically and a final sign-off job that uh, someone goes through, checks everything, ticks a box, and then it will be published uh, on the day that uh, it's due to be published on. And um, there's, there's quite a few sort of intermediate stages in between, but Podio sort of, sort of manages all that as a, you know, an end-to-end process. So you're managing large video files through Dropbox as your server, in essence. Yes, yeah, yeah, we we do. Uh, and the reason for that is because, um, well, it's mainly most of the transport of the screencasts are in ScreenFlow format because we're constantly editing them up to the final process. So um, the nice thing with Dropbox is once it's uploaded, um, the way that the, the screen flow file is created i mean there are media files contained within the ScreenFlow package they tend not to change so i mean i can upload a five gigabyte ScreenFlow file and someone else can download it they can make a change and when they upload it it just changes like you know 100 meg or something if if not probably even less because the media files themselves don't change it's just the the other files within the ScreenFlow wrapper that change so it's very efficient uh, and dropbox doesn't re-upload the entire five gig again it just uploads those bits that have changed and uh, it seems to work really really well once we get to the output stages whereby we're creating the the exported files um we tend although no they still stay in in dropbox but we also upload them to libsyn and that's where they're delivered from to the uh, you know to the end consumer when Dropbox was first getting started, it was, you know, package files were like kryptonite for them. It seemed like anytime you put a package up, there was a chance you'd lose data. But but I haven't experienced that for years, and but I've never test, tested it the way you have either. And it sounds like you're doing good too. We tend not to edit the file when it's in Dropbox. Uh, what will happen is we'll tend to use Dropbox as the transport mechanism. But when it arri- when it's in Dropbox, we normally pull a local copy out, work on the local copy, and then replace the Dropbox copy, and then it synchronizes between everybody. So I try and make sure that people don't edit the original file in Dropbox itself. Always pull it out to- for a local copy, edit, then put it back. And that seems to work fine, yeah. And how do you make sure two different people don't pull it down and edit it at the same time? Um, it's, it's a fairly linear process. So um, each person has a... You know, uh, when a job is created, it's only just the one person who's um, sort of assigned to that job. So it's it's very rare that we would have two people uh, editing it in the same sort of workflow step. So that never really happens. Let me um, back up a little bit because you, you you gave us a ton of information about how a how a fairly technical process works. Uh, let's talk back and and get a little bit higher level. So th- this all started gosh, almost 15 years ago now with, with Don, the single, not, not single as in, um, you know, not married, but, but Don, the individual business guy, putting this all together himself. And then at some point you decided, Hey, maybe I'd like to travel. Maybe I'd like to take a little time off. I'm going to have to figure out how to offload some of this off my, off my plate to, to get some other people to do this. How did you, I want to talk a little bit about the, the delegation process because for so many of us, that's the hardest step how did you figure out initially some of this I can delegate? What are the pieces of it that I can delegate? How did you first figure that out? And what were the first things you let go of? Um, the first things I let go of really were the post-production processes. So the uh, once once the screencast was completed, you know, you, you have this final, basically 
um, when it's when I say completed, it's the final package or the final video that needs to be delivered to the end customer. So you know that's sitting on my Mac at home. Um, how how does that get? through the, the sausage machine so that we end up with a web page and it up on Libsyn and all the other files that are needed to go with it. Uh, so it was that bit initially that I thought, well, that post-production, it's repetitive, it's scriptable, you know, so there are set processes that I need to go through. Um, so initially, I think I just sort of wrote out a script and did an explanatory video, as you might expect, of, of how the process worked. And then initially I reached out to Screencast Online um, uh, members and said, you know, is there anybody who would like to help me out doing the post-production side of things? And um, I got loads of people, you know, saying, yes, they would. So I think I, I think initially in the early stages, I, I took uh, about six people on board, uh, gave them the instructions on how, you know, the how the sausage machine worked and gave them the instructions and just let them have a go. And uh, although there were a few, you know, teething issues, eventually we, we got the process documented so that anybody could follow it. And that was the initial delegation. So that the post-production process, really, that was the, the thing that um, I, I, I tried to procedurize first. And then when it came to uh, delegating creation of the content, that's slightly more difficult because there's obviously there's a more creative aspects in that. So that was a case really of of finding um, you know good people who you know I respected and uh, had seen their work, and um, you know I, I would feel confident that they could produce good quality screencasts that we could publish under the Screencast Online banner. Um, and then once I had those people, obviously that's built up over time, but again. Um, set standards, uh, you know, standard templates, uh, standard resolutions, how I'd like the desktop to look and, um, you know, basically guidance in that respect. And then they then use those baselines to create the content, which then goes into the uh, production process and uh, gets delegated out to other people. Uh, I've also written a lot of uh, automated scripts and bash scripts that take away some of the manual processes and try and automate that. So, you know, most of the uploads are automated now. Um, things like generating <clears throat> chapter files. I've got some great developers as well. Uh, um, Simon Wolf, who has developed the Screencast Online members apps, but has created lots of sort of utilities that I use to um, just, just do things that would take time manually. But, you know, he's written a few scripts that enable me to um, create the tiles that you see on the website and just little things like that. And then try and tie it all together so that it's all scriptable and uh, pretty much anybody could run with it really with a, with a small amount of training. Yeah, I can imagine that would be scary, you know, giving giving up the post-production part. I mean, that's one thing that's behind the scenes. People people don't really see that. And if it goes badly, well, I mean, I guess if you did it far enough in advance, you could redo it if you had to, or you could have one bad one and, and, and fix it. But giving up the, or not all of it, but delegating some of the, the actual creation of the screencast. I mean, for so long, Screencast Online was Don McAllister, you know, and, and that's, that's that's got to be scary, and I know it's scary probably to a lot of people. It's quite a difficult process as well because you know I have to be aware, um, be, be aware of 
the members as well, because, you know, a lot of the members have been with me since the beginning. So they're familiar with myself. They're familiar with my style of presentation. And they signed up as members because they enjoyed, you know, the content I was delivering. So it, it was never, it, it's never been sort of, you know, this week it's me, right from next week, there's six other people. It's sort of been a gradual process. And, you know, we, we, we sort of tested people, make sure that the members enjoyed them. Um, I have to say there's been hardly any negative comments on any of the presenters that we've had obviously some people are all, aren't always going to gel with some people but you know it's the reception that the other presenters have had uh, has been been great so i've not really had an issue in that respect well, i mean i know that allison sheridan woman nobody likes her <laughs> i kid allison i'm not I naming any names i'm not naming any no no no, no. but uh, and again i uh, we do a tip video um which is a short 10 minute 15 minute video each week and uh, a long form video, which is anything from 30 minutes up to an hour. And I tend to do all the tip videos. So I'm still producing content each and every week. So there's that consistency. But the, the longer form ones, I probably do say one every four to five weeks now because we have four or five other people involved in, in producing the long form ones, which are the ones that really that take the most time and uh, you know, take a lot of effort to, to produce. And then one of the things it sounds like you're doing that I, I really like the idea of you're documenting a lot of your process. Um, or, I mean, are you kind of creating like a how to make screencasts online manual so that once you've done it, you can then hand it off to somebody else or not, not like hand it off to somebody else to do. But once you've now documented this process, this is the desktop you're going to use. This is the background you're going to use. I mean, I'm, I'm always a fan of if you bring someone on board, you know, make them make them write out what they do so that they can then, you know, kind of train their replacement or, or train their colleague, I guess. Yeah, well, the nice thing with, with the Podio system is that when you when you create a job, so let's say it's a recording job um, that goes off to the contributor to initiate the recording, um, it actually, um, well, you can configure it to create a list of tasks as well, which have little checkboxes next to them. So when a recording job arrives, it's not just the recording job with, you know, the location of the files, etc. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a whole list of uh, procedures that they need to follow to complete the job. So, of course, after a while, you get familiar with the, the tasks. But, you know, if it was someone new, they'd have a, a whole list of tasks that would take them through exactly what they need to do to complete that job. And all the jobs that contain within the Podio system have this task list so that, you know, people can use them as a, as a prompt. Or if they're not familiar with it, they can use it as an actual uh, instruction guide to, to work through. Um, and that includes, you know, like, for instance, if Nicola's doing uh, one of the post-production tasks, it might be pull down this file from here, get this icon file from here, um, run this script with this parameter, and then check that this is where it should be, and then go ahead and run this other script, and that will upload stuff and check this. So, you know, it, it's, 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 very, um, it's very detailed at this point now what people have to do to make sure that everything goes, goes accordingly. Because it's great fun trying to... Um, debug it when it doesn't work but you know there's, there's quite a detailed instruction manual built into the system rather than as, as a separate standalone manual now when you first said uh patio i'd never heard of the uh the application before and i just assumed it was kind of like a video or audio production it just sounds like a video production workflow but but looking at the website it's not it's really people use this to run their businesses all the time um, and so if you're listening, whether you're running a podcasting or a screencasting empire or a, uh, an insurance brokerage, it sounds like you could use this app. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And there's, there's a whole library of um, different apps and workflows that people have created and submitted to Podio. Now, most of the stuff that I've done, I've created from scratch. And it's really very, very simple to create from scratch as well. Um, but, you know, there are some predefined templates and things that people can use. But yeah, it's, it's, it's not, it's absolutely not thing to do with, with podcasting or, or video production. It is a, a business workflow tool that, that pretty much anybody who runs a business and has processes and procedures, um, it's a way of automating those processes and procedures um, using, you know, the Podio apps that you can create. So what made you decide on Podio over like the usual suspects? Like, um... you know, I'm not sure it's, it's such a, it's been such a long time now that I can't remember, but uh, it was just something that I, I stumbled across and thought, well, I could actually use this and um, experimented with it and found that it did everything I needed it to do. And away we go. I also use as well, I have to say, I use Airtable. Um, we do a lot of, um, a lot of the data is held in Airtable, which again, there's some manual copying and pasting between systems. But again, I'm looking to, to automate some of that. Now, one of the most recent things we did was to um, automate uh, data extraction from Airtable into the SQL database that we use for the live website. So now um, this is using uh, Zapier or Zapier. I'm not too sure how to do that, but there's a Zapier job. Uh, Zapier because it rhymes with happier. Is what is I, I think that's what our friend uh, Tim Stringer told us is, is the correct Zapier like happier and they call them zaps that's another way zaps okay so Zapier um, so yeah basically this just runs looking for a particular view within a table that when a show is due to publish it populates the view with the data needed to create the web page and then Zapier just goes ahead and sucks the data out of Airtable, drops it into the SQL database that we base our CMS on. And that, in effect, creates a brand new web page with all the data that's contained within Airtable. And, and there's, there's no um, no manual intervention whatsoever. That's completely automatic. So that on, on, the, on the day that a show is signed off, um, the web page gets created automatically. And we obviously go in and check that it's okay, but there's no copy and pasting of any data that's that's done automatically yeah you know Airtable is something that's been on the mac power users radar for a couple of years now it's a it's kind of a web-based um database program you know uh, we lost i mean uh, people uh i forget what's the one that apple owns um uh, uh file maker yeah file maker and then they had the simpler version bento, oh, for bento several that's years, right mm-hmm. which they shut down and Airtable seems to be the agreed upon alternative at this point. It really is. It's it's a great tool, uh, and it's so simple to use. I mean, it's it's in effect. It's like a, de- a database for people who are familiar with spreadsheets. Um, but there's a lot of power contained within there, and using something like uh, Zapier to integrate with other systems just takes it to the next level, really. So, how uh, what do you do with it in addition to setting up your CMS? Um, well, that's really where I tend to do the uh, planning. So I'll use, I have a table within uh, a table that we have all the shows in and that's where I do the initial planning and, and setting up of what we're actually going to do with all the dates, etc. And then we extract data from our table to put into Podio to create the recording jobs, etc. And it's, it's really the initial data repository for, for the shows, you know, um, what the title, what the subject's going to be, when it's going to be published, um, who's going to record it, and you know just just basic information um file names and stuff all held in Airtable, and then we just pull that information out when we need it to populate podio this episode of the mac power users is brought to you by sanebox 
the email service I use every day to manage my email. SaneBox acts as your own personal email assistant, sorting your inbox for you so you only see the most important emails, with less important emails getting relegated to other mailboxes for later. I really can't understate the value of that. Just imagine waking up in the morning, and instead of finding 72 emails in your inbox, you just find six, and they're the most important six emails that you really need to see. That's what SaneBox can do for you. And I'm not the only one that relies on SaneBox. It's also used by companies like eBay, Coca-Cola, Adidas, and LinkedIn to help their employees stay on top of the most important email. SaneBox has many additional features like the ability to track and notify you if people don't respond to your email and defer incoming email until later, which is really useful. It really serves as a set of power tools to make every aspect of using email easier and it works with just about any email platform, including iCloud, IMAP, Google, and Exchange. I generally use the built-in Apple Mail application, and it's SaneBox that allows me to give it those power tools to really serve me well. Without SaneBox, I'm not sure I'd be using Apple Mail. Mac Power users, listeners love SaneBox. We've heard back from the SaneBox folks that the conversion rate for our listeners is higher than any other advertising platform they've ever used. And I'm not surprised because Mac Power users like to get efficient. They like tools that make their day easier, and SaneBox is definitely that. If you'd like to become the boss of your email, go sign up for a free SaneBox trial today. And if you do so at SaneBox.com slash MPU, you're going to get a $25 credit you can use toward your subscription. Thanks, SaneBox, for all of your support of the Mac Power users. So, Don, we've been talking a lot about the, the screencasts online, the, the video, but there's also a very important uh, second part about this, that a couple of years ago, you also came out with Screencasts Online, the monthly magazine. And it was back when Apple was doing some newsstand stuff. And I think, I don't even know if newsstand is still a thing, but it's it's now more of an app and it's a magazine that has content and it has video in it. So tell us a little bit about uh, Screencasts Online monthly magazine and then what that is and how that's a how production of that works. Yeah, again, that's another rabbit hole, really. But we've been running now for, I think, four or five years. It's based on a third-party platform called Magcast. Um, and it allows me to create this iPad and iPhone application called the Screencast Online Monthly Magazine. And the idea behind that really was to, for those people who didn't want a full membership, um, you could actually buy the magazine either as a, an individual issue or you could have a subscription through iTunes to the magazine. Um, but members who have full memberships get that as part of their membership anyway. So uh, get lots of feedback from members. They really enjoy the format of, you know, having the, the magazine on the iPad. It contains, uh, it's published on the first of the month. It contains all the videos that we've published the month before, um, plus articles from, you know, luminaries and distinguished guests of which Katie, unfortunately... You're no longer there, but, you know. <laughs> For many years, I was a contributor to the magazine. Yes. I yes. know you were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sadly missed, sadly missed. But uh, uh, unfortunately, as things have gotten busier, it's, it's one of the things that I've, I've had to let go. But uh, I did enjoy contributing for a long time. Maybe, maybe I'll give you a guest column from time to time. Okay, that'd be good. That'd be really good. So yeah, so again, the production side of that, as I say, it's a third party platform. Um, again, I use Podio, though, as the um, as the basis for the production. So 
contributors submit articles into Podio and then there's a, a process that we run every month that extracts those articles out of uh, Podio uh, as a CSV file, um, which we then use pages to take the CSV file to create the page layout. And then the pages is exported to a PDF and then the PDF goes into Magcast. And then there's a, a process of adding all the links in manually. So it's quite a complex process, but again, we're, we're trying to automate it as much as possible. Uh, it's only this last two months that we've been able to use the latest version of pages because um, the new version of Pages doesn't support mail merge, which is what we actually use to take the CSV information and convert it into Pages format. But uh, Salsagoyan's got a great data merge app, which acts as a bridge now between CSV files and also uh, the new version of Pages. So we've now finally been able to migrate across to the new version of Pages. So, um, yeah, as I say, that's been going four or five years. Uh, members really love it. And, um, you know, it's part, part of a, it's a complimentary subscription as part of the full membership. Well, and I always thought it was a great I- idea. And I, I know it's stereotypical for people to say, oh, it's a great thing for my, my mom. But uh, I like to use my mom as an example because my mom loves learning about this type of stuff. But she loves the format of like a magazine or a book. And she's got an iPad. She, she's not going to watch a screencast on the Apple TV but she'll she'll sit down and she'll she'll read an article and then she'll tap in and say, oh, OK, well, maybe I'll watch this and see what's going on. You know, kind of picking and choosing and seeing which ones are interesting to her. So I think it's a great format for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's a more traditional way of presentation. And, you know, all the videos, uh, they're all streamable. So you have to have an online connection. But, you know, it's they're all there in one place. You can just go back and have a look what's been published in that month. And if there's any that take your fancy, just play them there and then in the iPad. And of course, you know, you've got the full screen. It blows to full screen green, great quality. Um, so yeah, it's really good. Uh, we still do have the apps as well. So there's a uh, two members apps for the Apple TV. So if people want to watch on the Apple TV, they can. And there's also an iOS app as well. So if people want to watch on their uh, iOS device, they can do that as well. And we've just, um, well, within the last month or two, introduced syncing between all the platforms now. So if you start watching um, a show on your uh, Apple TV and then go across the website, it, it maintains the place where you are in the the show so you can carry on from that point and you can you can like things it keeps track of what you've watched and what you want to watch and uh, stuff like that so it's, it's quite a quite a, a robust sort of little infrastructure that we've put together now well and again i'll i'll give you the the plug and use my mom's example i when i handed down my my apple watch to her she'd never used an apple watch before she loves it now by the way i think it's the best tech gadget we've we've ever gotten her and um you know she wanted to know how to use it she's like well maybe i'll get a book and i was like well why don't you watch don's screencast she did a whole series on them and it was great excellent yeah it's funny though don when you started the thinking that you might write a blog or uh, <laughs> yeah you know when you go back all those years and now you look you've got a you've got a, a fully engaged production line putting out two screencasts a week you've got a magazine did you ever see yourself coming to this point not really, to be honest, because, you know, in the early days, it was just, well, see, see how one, one of my biggest fears was, and it's, it's still strange now that uh, someone else had come along and, and start doing the same thing. And, you know, competition is always great. But in that respect, it's, it's never really happened. Of course, you've got the, the, the huge conglomerates like lynda.com um, and there's some sort of pro audio type sites that do it. But there's there doesn't seem to be... Uh, I know you yourself do the the books and stuff, which is great, but there's, there's no sort of weekly service that, that that sort of does what I do 
Um, so I've never really had any sort of major worries in that respect. So that, that was always my biggest fear is, is that someone else would come along and st- start doing the same thing and, uh, you know, that, that would be the end of it. But no, it's, 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 it's gone from strength to strength, really. Well, you know why, Don? Because, because it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to make good content and uh, not many people have uh, got it figured out the way you do. So good for you. Uh, I think there's a lot of luck involved as well. I think I came in just at the right time as well, um, because it must be difficult for people now, you know, who want to, um, there's so much free content. Um, it must be hard for people sort of competing with YouTube, etc. Uh, but it was funny. I, I went to the, um, I was in the, in the doctors for a checkup a couple of weeks ago and, uh, the doctor just said, Oh, well, what is it you do? And I explained, Oh, I have this membership system whereby, um, we produce videos about Apple stuff and, uh, and you know, I've been doing it for 12 years. And he said, people pay to download videos. So well, why would they do that when there's all this free stuff? You know, you can go to YouTube. And I said, well, no, it's, they like the quality. They like the, the style of presentation, you know, et cetera. He said, I don't understand it. He said, oh, by the way, um, how would I download a PDF from <laughs> Yeah, well, exactly. Go, exactly. go to YouTube and find it, you know, but you know, it's really strange that he couldn't get his head around the people who actually pay for content, but it's just convenience. And it's, it's just, you know, there is plenty of free stuff, but people like to have a trusted source of, of, of content. And that's why people sign up for memberships. Well, for, for most things out there, there is free information. The only problem was, is the quality of that information. How much time is it going to take to put it all together? And, you know, someone like you, uh, or even the Mac Power Users podcast, we do the work for you. That's right. And you've got the archive, you know, this people can go back and have a look, even if it's not applicable to them now. In six months time, there might be an app that they want to use, and they can go back to the archive and, and get the tutorial on that particular app. And it's, it saves them a huge amount of time. But the the archive is is what is huge because you, you look at something I'm like I'm not really interested in that right now. But then you you think about it uh, six months or a year later when you've got that thing and you're like oh, and then you go back and look. Don did a screencast series on it. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I learned to to using it myself now and again. You know, if it's something that I don't use a lot, uh, so oh, I did a screencast on that. Let me just and it's got there are chapters in, so you can jump straight to the chapters and there's even transcripts and subtitles, so you, know, you can jump jump straight to the section that you want and, uh, and and just gen up on that particular bit. It's that old problem of looking for something and Googling it and finding an article that you wrote. Is that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, that, that's happened. It happens sometimes. So, so Don, technologically, what, what is the most difficult problem you're wrestling with now managing all of this? I mean, it seems like you've, you've managed a lot of it, but I'm sure there's a few things that are still bugging um, yeah, just, just getting more familiar with AppleScript, I think, because it's, although AppleScript is great, it's still quite a beast of a, of an application to get your head around. So I'd like to, um, perhaps write a few more scripts for just those niggly little bits that are still manual processes and, and get them as automated as possible. Yeah. Sal's doing a new command D at somewhere in the South. I noticed that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was toying with the idea of uh, perhaps, uh, taking a trip to go and do that actually, because that's something i think i need it's three days of apple script training so if you want to get good at it that'd be a good place the other thing i'm hearing a lot about in the automation community is javascript i mean you know um uh, speaking of sal again he's helping omni group with their javascript implementation of that omni scripting which is all javascript based so i think that's another language if you really want to go deep on automation that you may want to spend some time on yes yes definitely what's the uh what's the um biggest problem you've solved lately that you're you're happy with and have a strange and unique solution for 
Um, but the thing I was most pleased was was that the thing I mentioned before about because um, all our web pages on Screencast Online are, are dynam- created dynamically from um, a SQL database, and the original process was to laboriously copy and paste every field that we needed from Airtable and paste it into the SQL database. Whereas now with this new Zapier thing, um, it took me about twenty minutes to put together, and it just saves so much time. And, it, and of course, not just saving time. As with any automation process, it's much more reliable. So, you know, there's no mistakes made. It, it, if it, when it works, um, as long as it works, everything is hunky-dory. You know, there's no uh, problems. Um, if, it, if it fails, I can go in and fix it. But, you know, it's, up to now, it's been pretty robust and uh, we can sort of forget about, don't worry about that side of the production process. So I was really pleased with that. That was, that was, a, that was a, a good one to, uh, to get under my belt. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because Zapier is web-based automation, and it's probably the most powerful tool for it. But, you know, your web-based automation is only as good as your web-accessible data is. And uh, combining it with Airtable, which is a web-based database, really gives you a lot of superpowers. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I need to uh, drill down a bit more and have a look, see what else we can do, I think, with that uh, with that service. Yeah, now that you've got the account, you should just go nuts with it, right? yeah. <laughs> So, Don, I want to uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about travel. You've mentioned a few times how you've you've traveled around and you've gotten to travel. And I know we talked about, um, uh, I think it was pre-show, we talked a little bit about Mac Mania and how that kind of got you with the travel bug. Uh, where are you off to these days? It seems like every time I see you on Facebook, you've got another adventure going on. Um, well, we've just come back. Well, other than San Jose and the WWC, um, we've we've just not long been back from South America. Um, so we did the we did a trip to Ecuador and the Galapagos Islands. Uh, followed on with a week in Peru. Uh, we visited Machu Picchu, which is uh, was high on our bucket list. So um, yeah, that was great. Uh, earlier in the year, uh, well, last year we went to Arizona and did some dude ranching stuff and uh, a road trip. So we, we've We've travelled a fair bit over the past couple of years, and as you say, it was all it all stemmed really from MacMania. Which, uh, if people weren't familiar with MacMania, it, it was um, a thing run by a company called Insight Cruises, whereby they had uh, Mac themed cruises. Um, it was a normal cruise, but they would have six or seven presenters from uh, the Mac space, and while we were at sea, they would do uh, seminars. Uh, to keep the you know the, the the Mac people happy on the the sea days, and uh, I was fortunate enough to be invited to be a speaker on one of those cruises, and that sort of well, it did one of a couple of things really. It gave us the travel bug because we we did quite a bit of travel. We did South America with Mac Mania, we did China and Japan, and uh, we did the Mediterranean, um, so we did some really good cruises with them. But it, it introduced us to. Um, a load of people that we'd uh, not met before, sort of like soulmates who had similar interests and um, we've kept in touch with them over the years. So a lot of the traveling that we do is to travel with people that we, we know from Mac Mania. Um, we've been, been to visit them at home several times all over the place and uh, we, we travel with them. So we sort of built a little um, a little group of, of travel buddies that we, we tend to go away with, which is uh, which is really nice. Yeah, you know, when, once I get my kids through college, I want to go Machu Picchu so badly. I, but, but I, now, now, did you do the hike up to the top or? No, no, I have to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not it's, sure I could do it either. I, yeah, well, there's a thing called the, the Inca Trail, which is three days, four nights. And that's, um, it's, it's, it's quite, 
challenging, I believe. What you can do, though, is you can just do the last part of the hike, um, which is like a day's hike. And basically on the train to Machu Picchu, you, you sort of jump off the train, the stop before Machu Picchu town, and then you can do like the day's hike to get to Machu Picchu. But no, to be honest, we... Um, we did it the um, the lazy way and got the train to the foot of Machu Picchu and then took one of the buses up to the top. But we did have some people within our group who who did the trek and they they, they loved it. Although it was it was quite strenuous, even just for the one day. Um, not sure if I'd have been able to cope with that. But um, were you were you just getting winded walking around at the top? I've heard so many horror stories. <laughs> surprisingly, yeah, no, surprisingly not. Um, well, you, you'd normally go to a place called Cusco, which is the nearest sort of big city to Machu Picchu, and that's quite high. I think that's three thousand two hundred meters. Uh, so that's actually higher than Machu Picchu itself. So when you go to Machu Picchu. You actually go you, you you go down to I think two thousand eight hundred meters. So while you're in Cusco, um, you are advised to drink cocoa tea and uh, or chew cocoa leaves and basically just don't exert yourself. To be honest, but we you could tell we were at altitude, but we didn't really overexert ourselves and we were fine. Um, again, we'd heard some horror stories and there was one guy who uh, who was affected in our little group, but not not tremendously badly. But I have heard some horror stories. But no, as long as you you're you know, you, you don't go mad. Um, it's, it's normally okay, but it's, it's well worth it though. I mean, it's, it's such a spectacular place to visit, you know, it's, um, yeah. Although I've seen all, all the pictures and everything until you actually go there and experience it, you don't really fully take it in, you know, the actual, the scale, um, and how, how they actually put it all together. It's just unfathomable. So, so Don, when you go on these trips, I'm assuming you strap your iMac to your back, your iMac Pro. <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah, no, it's it's the the iPad and the uh, the MacBook Pro. They come with me most places now, uh, and it, it it really depends. I mean, most you know, most hotels that we go to tend to have a decent internet connection. Um, we did have a difficulty when we went to the Galapagos because we were on a, you know, a, a small boat sailing around the island. So that was a bit tricky, but we managed to pull a few emails down. And uh, the, the the thing that I try and do is, of course, is, is to make sure that everything is done in advance before we go away. So <clears throat> hopefully get a couple of weeks worth of shows in the can um, so that if anything major does happen while we're away, it's, you know, it's, it's not going to impact the, uh, the publishing of the shows. So I, I always seem to be now in a constant state of either um, catch up from being away or in preparation for going away again, you know, so you, it's never consistent now. I'm always in catch up mode or, or, or preparation mode. So the challenge when traveling with technology, it seems to me like these days quite often isn't power, but internet access. Oh, it's always internet. Yeah. Always internet access. That's, that's the main thing. Um, yeah, I mean, if I get a decent internet connection, um, it's just like working from home. But you know, as soon as it, as soon as you get to a dicey hotel or um, a bad connection, now it's it's a nightmare. Can be a nightmare. You got any tips for the listeners on ways to get yourself a better internet connection on the road? Not really, to be honest. I always, um, I mean, I haven't got. Uh, in the old days, I perhaps used to take one of those MiFi's away with me. But um, the thing I find great now is that the the phone, I, the carrier that I use for my iPhone, um, it's a company called Three here in the UK. They have uh, this thing called Feel at Home, which uh, used to be like twenty or thirty countries you could use the phone in and use your standard data allowance and, and phone connection. But now that's extended to like 70 countries and the whole of Europe, the US. So when I come over to the US, I can just use my phone, no extra SIMs, 
no messing about with different data plans. I just use my phone as though I'm at home and it's, it makes such a difference um, having con- connectivity on your phone. Um, that just makes life so much simpler. And that gives you a way to tether if you're, you know, if you have a bad internet. Uh, well, sometimes, yeah, but more often than not, you're sort of banned from tethering. I, I do think next time, um, when the next iPads come out, um, I haven't in the past, but I think I might stump for a, a cellular iPad next time because, you know, sometimes you can't tether. And I think it would be useful to have a second device that's got a cellular connection so that uh, I can work on the iPad as well as the iPhone. Yeah, AT&T in the United States has a deal. I don't know. I'm sure Verizon has something similar. Like, I know, like, Europe and some of the bigger countries, if you go, it's just $10 a day. You have to call them in advance to turn it on. But for $10 a day, you get your usual, you know, unlimited data plan and your cellular phone number works. And whenever I'm international, I usually turn that on. It does get expensive if it's a long trip, but $10 a day isn't that bad. And you don't, you don't have to monkey around with getting the MiFi. And like, if you have like for business, if people call your phone number, you can pick it up no matter where you're at and not worry about it, which is really nice. Katie, do you do, do you do that? Uh, you haven't, you did some international travel last year. How did you handle it? Verizon has this deal that if you're in the um, Canada or Mexico, it's a it's a lesser rate, and I think it may even apply to certain areas of Central America. But anywhere else in the in the world, it's a ten dollars a day, same deal that uh, AT and T has. So what I did is I um, I looked at the SIM deals, and you could do that. I ended up using Wi Fi for most of my trip. But then the days that we were out and about, I just paid the $10 a day and and it was fine. My big thing is when I was traveling, like you, David, I, I needed people to be able to call me and I needed an actual number that if they called me on that I could I could get the phone call. So that was why I did it. But kind of like Don, you know, I, I, I'm kind of the cheapskate. I always have gone for that non-cellular iPad figuring, oh, why do I need cellular on multiple devices? Let me let me save the, the 10 bucks a month. I can always tether. But I have found that tethering has not worked well in the last couple of versions. Of, of iOS. It's always been a pain. So um, I've, um, I, I think I'm going to go cellular for my next iPad. Yeah, so. I think the last time I tried tethering when it was allowed, I, I, I ran out of bandwidth, um, which, and, and it was in fact wrong. They'd made a mistake, but basically, you know, uh, it, it was, um, I'd run out of data on the tethering and I couldn't buy any more till the end of the month, which was crazy. They wouldn't even let take the money off me to, to have more bandwidth. So I've sort of given up on tethering now. So I think I, I, I think I will go with the cellular iPad next time. So now uh, I'm going to say this and somebody is going to have something go drastically wrong for them because they take my advice. But when I was in Europe, I was able to tether just fine using my phone with the $10 a day plan, which was great. So in fact, I have a cellular iPhone, uh, I'm sorry, a cellular iPad, but I didn't pay the $10 a day for that. I just used my phone as the tethering device and I tethered the iPad to it. Um, so I guess it depends on what you're saying, but I, I do think that the big challenge, if you're going on a trip ahead of time is just figure out where you're going to get data. I mean, I was just up in uh, San Jose last week, which is in my state. I didn't even leave the state and still, because I'm traveling, you know, the hotel always says they have Wi-Fi, and it's always terrible. And, you know, you find the local cafes where you can get a, a cup of tea and, and get some good internet. And no matter where you go in the world, those places are there, but that if you're going to try and get work done on the road, that that is, I think, the challenge. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, I, I sort of, uh, emails, etc. is fine. But if I need to get involved in any of the post-production process, especially if we've reached the stage whereby we've got the final exported files, you know, they can be, before they get compressed, they can be, you know, a couple of gigabytes easily. And there's just no way you're going to download gigabytes of data when you're on the road. So I just have to forget about that and, uh, and delegate that to somebody else if, if at all possible. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you in part by 1Password. Learn more and save up to 20% off by heading over to onepassword.com slash MPU. While you all may still be excited about what Apple has announced at WWDC, you can't get your hands on any of that right now. What you can get your hands on is the brand new 1Password version 7 for Mac. And let me tell you, this is a nice upgrade. 1Password for 7 for Mac has a ton of amazing new features, and it's probably the best version of 1Password ever. It starts with the new 1Password Mini, which is probably how most of us interact with 1Password on a daily basis. When you pull up 1Password Mini, you'll find all of the information that you need ready and waiting for you. It makes it super easy to fill in your password from your web browsers and get all of the information that you need from your fingertips, all without ever having to open the main 1Password application. But if you do decide to open the main application, you will find a beautiful new bold design, including a custom new font called Courier Prime Bits, which makes it easier there than ever to review your passwords and make sure that you don't accidentally have some of those commonly confused letters and numbers, like is that a zero or a one or an L? Nobody really knows. Now you don't have to guess. But perhaps some of my favorite features of 1Password 7 are the new watchtower features in 1Password 7 that goes out of its way to make sure that your passwords are safe online. Because we know that there are a lot of vulnerabilities out there. Passwords have been leaked through no fault of your own, Watchtower now integrates with the HaveIBeenPwned.com service to see if any of your logins are vulnerable. So 1Password securely checks your items against a collection of breached passwords and will securely let you know whether you need to change your password. And 1Password also knows which websites support two-factor authentication and will give you a reminder to let you know, hey, maybe you should Turn on two-factor authentication with this site so you can be even more secure. These are just a few of the new features in the all-new 1Password 7. And if you're already a subscriber to 1Password, what are you waiting for? Just go download it. If you're not a subscriber to 1Password, well, then you can still buy it as a standalone license. Either way, head over to onepasswordcom MPU to learn more. And thanks to our friends over at 1Password for their support of the show. All right, Don, you're taking all these trips. Um, what are the travel apps you're using to, uh, to get by? Um, I should really have my phone with me, shouldn't I? And, uh, and take a peek. Um, you know, I don't really use that many travel apps. The only one I, that, that springs to mind that I use constantly is TripIt. So I'll use TripIt to keep a record of all the connections and flights and hotels, etc. Um, so I pay for the, the pro level subscription to trip it. And I find that to be really, really useful. Not so much, although it will prompt you, you know, it normally tells you if there's a gate change or something uh, ahead of the uh, the boards up in the airport, but it's just having everything in a single application that I can scroll through and, and have a look at my itinerary and see where I'm supposed to be at what time. Um, so that's the main one that I use. Um, I, I'm, I'm starting to use Apple Maps more 
Um, although still a few little niggles with Apple Maps in that not being 100% accurate, but it's so much better than it used to be. Uh, or if I really want to make sure that I'm definitely on the right road, I'll use uh, Google Maps. Uh, but other than that, I can't think of any any specific travel apps that I might use. Uh, I might use something like um, one of the Viator or some of the uh, tourist-based ones. You know, if, you're, if I'm looking for tours or stuff, uh, I might look at those. But um, nothing, nothing jumps out screaming at me as to specifically travel apps. You do find sometimes there are some quite good apps to do with specific locations. Like when we did the... Um, um, the, we did a tour of uh, Asia not too long ago. So I downloaded like a, a an app about Hong Kong and an app about Singapore. And, um, you know, that gave us landmarks and uh, tour suggestions, stuff like that. But uh, they're the main ones that I tend to use most regularly. Is, is Apple Wallet to a point now for someone who travels as much as you that it has use? I mean, do you do you get your boarding passes and all that? Yeah, most um, most airlines now will allow you to have mobile boarding passes. Uh, what I don't use is the, and I should do really, but you, you can, you know, your wallet gets transferred to your watch. I always seem to forget about that. I can actually access my wallet on my watch. So invariably, I, I, again, I, I'm a bit old school in that I, I tend to prefer paper boarding passes. I know it's sacrilege, but um, I've, I just feel a little bit happier that I've got a paper boarding pass rather than uh, a boarding pass in the wallet. Well, I, I think that makes sense when you're traveling internationally, though, because you never know what's going to happen. Are you going to lose your phone? Are you going to lose your connection ability? You know, those yeah, types of things. Yeah, yeah. And also the just just the fact that you know will the QR code actually scan because I've seen so many people sort of trying to go through with electronic boarding passes and the the scan is not calibrated properly and they're having problems scanning so yeah I, I tend to prefer to have um, a, a paper boarding pass although uh, I mean on the last trip um, the last leg of the trip I actually did use an electronic pass and it, it worked just fine so that's that wasn't a problem. Yeah, I usually go belt and suspenders. I usually have a paper boarding pass in my back pocket, but. Um, sometimes just for giggles, I don't. And one of these days I'm going to get completely screwed because (laughs) I was going through a um, boarding uh, on an airplane a few months ago and they had a scanner at the gate that the way it was engineered was it was like a couple inch gap and you would stick your phone between the plate and the scanner. So there was a very narrow gap to put your phone. And I was looking at it and I had my my boarding pass on my wrist, which I usually actually board with my wrist. And I'm like, there's no way my wrist will fit in that two inches. <laughs> and, the, uh, <laughs> and fortunately, while I saw it enough in the line, I could open up wallet on my phone and get it in there. But I just feel like I'm destined. I'm going to have a great story on Mac Power User someday where I get stuck some crazy place because uh, I took a risk. And Katie, Katie will laugh at me. I'll predict that. On the very last trip, because um, I, I booked most of my flights through Expedia, um, because basically I, I, I'm not loyal to any one particular airline because, you know, to, to get points and stuff, I just basically go for the best deal. Sometimes when you do take that route, you, you for, for whatever reason, they won't allow you to, to download electronic boarding passes. So on the trip to San Jose, I was traveling out of Manchester, um, direct to, uh, well, it was to, I think it was to Frankfurt and then on to San Jose. But on the trip from Manchester to Frankfurt, I'd had a paper boarding pass. And for the first time ever, I had it in my wallet. Uh, when I went through security, uh, when I came at the other end of security, the, the, the paper pass had disappeared. I still had my wallet, thank goodness, but the, the boarding pass was nowhere to be found. So, um, but again, it wasn't a problem. They just printed me another boarding pass out at the at the gate. But uh, I, I would have preferred to have had a digital copy in that case because I've never lost a boarding pass before, but there's always a first time. 
And what about back on your Mac? Are there any utilities or menu bar apps or things that listeners should know about? Um, yeah, I tend, there is, there is a couple. Um, there's the one that's called trip mode. That's the one that cuts down the services that you might use when you're away from home. I use encrypt me as my VPN service and then trip mode to switch off uh, Dropbox, etc. when I've got sort of uh, low bandwidth or, or expensive bandwidth. Uh, they're the two main ones that I, I tend to use while I'm, I'm traveling on the Mac. Uh, encrypt me especially, you know, for the VPN service um, and then trip mode when I remember to switch it on, although it's quite good at switching itself on automatically if you configure it that way. And now do you use encrypt me and the VPN connection all the time when you're away from home or do you just have certain circumstances? And pretty much all the time. Um, I, I signed up for one of these unlimited data plans with encrypt me. So I, I can just leave it switched on and it doesn't cost me any extra. So yeah, I, I do the same thing. Anytime I'm in a coffee shop, even domestically. And that's really nice if you're traveling and using other people's Wi-Fi. Yeah, and also on the on the iPad and on the uh, iPhone as well, I have it switched on. Although there can be problems, um, especially on, I, I find it mainly on cruise ships, that if you try and connect to the, the local um, cruise Wi-Fi system, you know, the ship Wi-Fi system, invariably it fails because you've got your VPN switched on. So I, I normally tend to switch that off, uh, disable it, connect, get onto their internet and then switch it back on again. That tends to, to work. Okay. Yeah. If you ever have a Wi-Fi problem and you've got an encrypt a VPN attached, try turning it off. That usually solves it. Yeah. So Don, what is exciting you these days? It can be tech related. It can be non-tech related. I, I just kind of want to close. It's been a long time since we've, we've talked to you. What are you excited about now? Um, electric cars. That's my uh, thing that I'm quite looking forward to. Um, I'm one of those people who stumped up a thousand dollars deposit. In fact, it was a thousand pounds deposit for a Tesla Model 3 um, two years ago now. And uh, we've still got another year to wait before they appear here in the UK. So I'm sort of biding my time. I'm wondering whether or not something else will come out in the meantime that uh, I might go for. I've been quite tempted by this new model, uh, the new uh, Leaf by Nissan. There's a new model uh, come out, which looks quite interesting. But I'm sort of still biding my time and genning up, um, looking at Tesla Model S's and X's enviously. But um, I'm holding out for my Model 3. See, uh, see if I still want it when it finally appears. All right. Now, educate me. I, I'm very interested in the Teslas, but I've, I've never seriously looked at them because I, uh, as a... A single person with a single car, I know that I could never buy just a purely electric car. I am kind of interested in some of these hybrids that are coming out that are that are electric but do have a backup gas tank. Um, but the Model 3, the Model 3 is kind of what Tesla is pushing out as the, the consumer model. Is that right? Or Yeah, that's that's it's it's the first sort of one that's aimed at a mass market because the Model S and the Model X, uh, the Model S is the big sedan and the Model X is the SUV, but they're so expensive. They're really, really expensive. Um, here in the UK, you're talking about 60, 70,000 pounds for the Model S and then anything from 80 to over 100,000 pounds for the Model X. Um, the Model 3 is supposed to uh, retail at about $35,000 for the basic model. But by the time you add some of the extras on, it's going to take it up, you know, above that. But we still haven't seen what the pricing is going to be here in the UK. So it might be prohibitive for me. The problem being that I, I don't drive anywhere. <laughs> it sounds stupid. We have a family car, but, you know, obviously I work from home. So we don't really travel that much. But I just would like an electric car. It's just something I've always uh, fancied, you know, something uh, 
to treat myself with. But um, yeah, the Model 3. So the Model 3 is, uh, it's a very uh, minimalist, I can't speak now, it's getting late. It's a very uh, minimalist car. So inside there is just the steering wheel. There's no dashboard. You just have a a landscape um, screen, touchscreen in the middle of the uh, car. And uh, everything is controlled through that touchscreen. But apparently, you know, it's it's engineered well. It drives really well. Uh, it's great fun to drive. It's a lot smaller than the Model S. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just uh, interested to see what it's like when it finally comes out. It's supposed to be one of the first cars eventually that will be uh, fully autonomous as well. So I'm just interested in the whole space of uh, electric cars, but also um, you know, things that are happening in the industry to do with not just electric cars, but um, uh, electric in the home, you know, power to the home and renewable energy, etc. Uh, we've just had a, an exhibition here in the UK, um, a guy called uh, Bob Llewellyn, who's um, a UK TV presenter. He's got a YouTube channel called Fully Charged, and uh, he's been running that for a couple of years. And they just put on an event at Silverstone over the weekend, which I went down to have a look at. And that was great. You know, lots of electric cars, lots of sessions about uh, the future of electric cars and the future of uh, electric cars and the home as well. So uh, it's a fascinating topic, actually, and uh, something that uh, I'm quite interested in. Yeah, cars that drive themselves can't come soon enough for me, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I'm on the Model 3 website right now. I'm, I'm just checking this out. Did you know that you can reserve your Model 3 now with Apple Pay? That that seems almost a little <laughs> too scary. <laughs> I know, I know. That you can just... I, I can't afford an electric car, but I did get an electric bike. So that's my, uh, that's my, oh, uh, right. that's the, uh, anyway. Did you try the electric scooters out at San Jose? Yeah. You want to go down that rabbit hole for just a second? Oh, boy. Yeah. So, so in San Jose, they have these scooters just littered all over the city. Somebody just like dumped them everywhere and it has an app. So you can use your app to reserve a scooter. And it actually does a pretty good job of getting you somewhere sort of close, but not real close, like in between in a lift ride and a long walk. And everybody's riding them all over. But it's funny, in the app, they they want you to affirm you have your helmet that you're going to ride on the street. And honestly, nobody I saw, I didn't see a single person wearing a helmet. And I didn't see a single person riding on the street. They were all riding on the sidewalk without helmets on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everybody's making fun of them. But it it seems like a good idea. And in these cities, uh, we need solutions like that. Um, so I, I'm curious to see where it all goes, but, but I'll take my electric bike. It's got bags on the back. I can throw things in. It's I, I like, and it, you sit higher. So, um, I think I just hit like 400 miles on my electric bike. So I'm, I'm using it a lot. Well, Don, it has been far too long. Um, next time we talk to you, I want to hear all about, I hope it won't be this long, but I want to hear all about your model three that you, you have. Okay. We'll, uh, <laughs> if I end up, if I end up getting, we'll, you know, we'll have yeah. you come back on the show and, uh, uh, we'll, we'll do a we'll do an MPU neutral edition with you okay. to to hear all about your your carb and uh, and all those those fun things. But it's it's been far too long, and uh, I, I miss miss talking to you, and I, I miss seeing you. So hopefully we'll get to to catch up soon one of these days. Well, you'll you'll have to get yourself down to Macstock one of these years because um, you know that's that's be good to see you there. Well, we can send Katie a selfie. We'll just send her a selfie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. All right, guys. So, um, Don, why don't you let people know where they can where they can find you? I know you're on the web at Screencasts Online, but all the other places you can find Don McAllister. 
Yeah, sure. Well, the best thing to do is, is uh, if you're interested in the videos, is go to screencastonline.com. And there's a, oh, I've also introduced a, a free trial now, so people can sign up to a free trial to download all the stuff and have a look at the apps and have a look at the magazine, etc. Um, otherwise, you can find me on Twitter as Don McAllister. And uh, that's, that's the main place where I hang out, actually, to be honest. I still enjoy uh, jumping onto Twitter. Uh, there's an official SEO line, so SEO line, which is the um, uh, the official Twitter handle for Screencast Online, but there's not much going on there. Just stick with Don McAllister. Uh, you can find everything that we do on our website. That's at relay.fm slash MPU. Uh, we do want to say thanks to our sponsors this episode. That would be Smile, Squarespace, SaneBox, and 1Password. And we will see you all next time. Mm-hmm.